Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissing. And this is a show for you if you're bored with people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts. We ask the experts. Our fantastic guest this week is a serial entrepreneur and the co-founder of Tick. Jess Butcher, welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you for having me. Before we get into the interview, I just noticed Francis has replaced the word of with the word with, which you've been getting a lot of shit on no, YouTube No, for. I have. Uh, and social peer pressure is, is finally, yeah. You've, yeah. you've crumbled, mate. Yeah, I know, I have out. crumbled. I you've have sold crum- out. I know it's not grammatically correct, but it's a colloquialism of where I come from. But due to you vicious bullying bastards, you have... Imp- You've impinged on me, and it's, it's made me sad. Anyway, You've so. made him improve his grammar. Sorry, Jess. Uh, that, that was just totally random. Yeah. Uh, very warm welcome to Trigonometry. Thanks. We obviously know exactly who you are, uh, but tell us a little bit about for our viewers. What's your journey through life? How are you where you are? How have you ended up sitting in the chair in which you currently sit? Oh, the short version. I'll give you the short version. Um, I'm from the Midlands. I've worked very hard at losing the accent. Um, <laughs> I am the product of a very, uh, a very happy sort of middle class um, upbringing. Two siblings, um, uh, very supportive parents, um, and I've been in London since graduation. I had the scrappiest, messiest CV ever, where. I kind of jumped jobs every two years um, because I'd get bored or I couldn't be managed. Um, <laughs> but there was a theme. <laughs> there was a theme to all of it, which was uh, one of just really enjoying working on the front end, as in the sales and the marketing of disruptive new businesses, businesses that were trying to change behaviours. Um, and I guess what I always was, and which I now am. To cut to the end of the story, is I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, I always wanted to build businesses, I always wanted to be my own boss, I guess. But I, I, it took me a long time, I guess, to get the confidence and of course the golden bullet of an idea to do that. Uh, so I kept riding the coattails of all these other entrepreneurs in my 20s in a very scrappy way and learning from some of the best and also some of the worst <laughs> um, about you know how to build businesses. Uh, and then um, I met my business partners at my, um, my first company, which was Blipper, which I started in 2011. Um, and that was for, for some years, one of the big tech success stories that came out of the UK. We were uh, the global pioneer in the augmented reality uh, space. My job, again, sales, marketing, communications, building brands and, and media interests, helping with investment. And it was a thrilling ride. You know, mm. We went global. We were talking on stages all over the world and, um, uh, and really you know, disrupting something. And I loved the story of that. And it was certainly the most on and alive I've ever felt in my life um, building that business. And that's just given me the hook. Um, uh, and I'm now... Um, I'm now, I was for a couple of years, I moved into a sort of advisory consulting role where I was working with a lot of other startups, helping to scale them, give them advice, did some investing, consultancy. And then a year ago, I got my head turned and now I am back at the bottom of the pile building another tech business Mm -hmm. for my sins. Uh, A really, really exciting 
very, very ambitious uh, micro video platform business for user generated how to content. Um, and yeah, I'm back at the on the roller coaster again. It's very exciting. So you're a woman in tech. I am. So you're definitely oppressed, as we know. It's oppressed. I'm a woman in tech and I'm a female entrepreneur. Mm. So I am a I am I'm double intersectionally uh, oppressed <laughs> with uh, those, those two labels. Um, and yeah, and I guess because I the, the, the journey between Blipper and Tick mm. involved a couple of years where I stepped out of the front seat of that business because I had three children in four years. Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah, a bit, bit foolish with hindsight. Uh, obviously, hugely rewarding. Mm. Uh, but it just meant that I was kind of less inclined to do the 100-hour work weeks, live my life on a plane, and I needed to reclaim some balance and, frankly, sanity to my day-to-day. -day. Mm. So I, I, I had sort of a year and a half, two years at home and it was during that time that I really started to think about in more depth and explore this apparent oppression, or not oppression, this sort of discrimination within these two fields that I was so closely connected with and which I was being invited to talk about on platforms all the time. Um, and there are a number of sort of catalysts to my thinking at that time. Um, the first was... Uh, my mother, actually, I took her to a speaking event that I was at where I was being interviewed about how hard it is, was to be a woman in tech. And I was very good at this line. I, you know, I, I, I had all the stories and, and things. And it was only afterwards that she sat me down over a glass of wine. She said, tell me, has it been hard? How has it been hard? I went, you know, I, I really genuinely just want to understand how, it, how it's been hard for you. And I kept telling these stories. And she said, that's not your story. That's someone else's story. That's not your story, that's someone else's story. Have you found it hard? Because what I've seen is that you're getting more opportunities to speak on platforms than any of your male business partners. You keep getting these award nominations that none of your male business partners get. You get a lot of PR and column inches. Um, have you found it hard? And the way she grilled me on this, I kind of thought, hmm, I am using other people's stories and I am like saying this sort of stock line on my in actual fact it has it hasn't been hard i've i've actually loved being a minority within my two spheres because it does enable me to stand out it enables me to get recognition and then i also started to think about how i got all those opportunities and i realized that so much of it had come from the love and support of the men in my life mm. You know, the, those men who really believed in me. It started with my incredible father who just brought me up thinking I could be and do anything the boys could be. There was no concept of you know, you're going to find it harder than your brother. None of that. You know, whatever you want to be, you can be. You know, how can I help you? You know, what, what, what should we talk about today? What's interesting you at the moment? And then business bosses that I had, mentors that I had, people that I looked up to, they always supported me and, and pushed me forward and gave me opportunities. And I'm now fortunate enough to be married to a wonderful man who does that, who really enjoys my success, is a bore at dinner parties and always wants to tell people what I've been doing. And you know, my wife's got an MBA and I'm, stop, <laughs> how embarrassing is that? Um, and, and then I started to think, well, actually, some of the people that I've had the biggest challenges in my professional life have been women. And I'm not allowed to say that. You know, that is, but ultimately, I don't subscribe to this, um, this identity box definition. I'm not a female entrepreneur. And I started to 
resent that. Mm. You know, I'm just an entrepreneur and I want recognition for building great businesses. I don't want people to buy my product because I'm a woman. I don't want any special favors because I'm a woman. But I always felt this slight sense of conflict because obviously I do have a product to sell. So if there's positive discrimination to be taken advantage of, then absolutely I will do that. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I also feel a conflict because it's not like I'm saying the whole narrative is, is wrong. I do believe that women respond very well to role models. And I understand a lot of the initiatives behind these awards and uh, the publicity and the, the, the media narrative around getting more women into the public eye and getting them to share their story. Because younger women, including myself when I was younger, are hugely uh, affected by seeing people like them succeeding. And that is very empowering as far as being able to identify with that and, and see yourself in that position. And of course, we come in all different shapes and sizes. It's not the sort of Deborah Meaden-esque mm. dragon in business. It's, um, you know, sort of scrappy uh, skateboarding girls and pink haired girls and every color, every, every age. Uh, introverts, extroverts, you know, it's really important. I think women do get influenced by that. So a lot of what's happening within, I guess, the diversity industry in my two fields, I support and I'm actively involved in, but I stop or draw the line when it comes to the overemphasis around discrimination um, and disadvantage, because I think when you start tipping into negativity mm. and definition of our, ourselves around our gender, I, I have less time for that because I ultimately don't think it does girls and women any favors. And do you think there is a problem uh, with the tech uh, industry and women in particular and attracting women? Do you think it's, it's male dominated and, you know, and therefore it's harder for a woman to make her way. I know you've got your story, but somebody else's story could be different, for example. Yeah. Um, oh, there's no question it's male-dominated. There's no question about that. To the second point, is it harder for a woman to make their way? No, I don't believe it is. I mean, if, they, if they're going to feel uncomfortable in a majority male environment, then they might feel less inclined to it. But I don't believe it's harder. I think that there's been an overcorrection there and... Um, you know, there's a lot of positive discrimination for women coming into the technology space, which I don't agree with either because I'm I, perhaps naively a meritocrat and I believe it should always be best person for the job. But it's a vibrant, buzzy, exciting sector and um, very few women that I know that come into it, you know, have day-to-day -day anxiety within that sector. Mm. Um, and also tech isn't really an industry. I also get a bit cross with that as a definition. Everything's tech. There's no business in the world right now that isn't tech in some in, in some way. And there's so many creative media, um, communications, product opportunities that aren't pure coding. But we seem to obsess on that underrepresentation within the technology job specifically and the fact that that's apparently having an impact on how products are designed and they don't have women in mind. and. That certainly has been the case, and some high-profile examples of that. So I'm glad to see some of that being corrected. But I don't feel. I think I feel a fantastic industry for women, and that most of the women, all the women I see, are doing tremendously well within it. And I would love to see more women in it, but I'm afraid I believe in the differences, the average differences between oh. the predilection of men and uh, women, and it's borne out time and time again in the data as far as their aptitudes and interests in 
certain types of fields of science, for example, and uh, more people, softer uh, social um, uh, interests than things. Mm. You know, the, the, there is evidence for that, and I find it compelling. Mm. Before we get into that, I just wanted to go back for can, a moment. Can I just stop? I, I just want to make it clear to everyone here that I don't see gender. Carry on. You don't see gender? No, okay. I don't. That's Call me Bob. Call, yeah, Call me Bob. Caller. Yeah. It's interesting that your girlfriend's female. <laughs> yeah. How did that happen? Well I, I, well, I was attracted to Aurora. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, well, there you are. Um, I was going to ask you if we go back a little bit bec uh, before we get into the details of the kind of men and women and all, all the rest of it. I was interested that you've had a journey of kind of almost a transition from a particular way of talking about this issue to a totally different one. What do you think it was that made you talk about uh, you know, discrimination and all that stuff from that perspective in the first place? Um, that is really interesting, and it was a journey. Um, it, it was actually quite accidental. It was something I was feeling um, sort of disillusioned with for a long time, but also very, very nervous about putting my head above the parapet on because I was conscious that I'd be swimming against the stream that, frankly, I work within. You know, all these people um, are yeah, great friends of mine. Sorry to interrupt. I actually meant when you were talking about how there is discrimination, mm -hmm. uh, what was it that pushed you to do that in the first place before you changed? Oh, because that was what everyone was saying. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to be within these sectors. I mean, that's what the, that, that, that would almost be the title of the session that I'd be in. So <laughs> it was inviting us to all relay those moments when we'd been the only woman in a room and, you know, the client has been talking, that we've been sh talked over or, you know, someone had directed comments to junior male colleagues mm -hmm. um, you know, next to us. So I guess I was... Yeah, I, I guess I heard so many of those stories that I um, I felt well, I've, I must have some to contribute, and you know, and that there is a problem here, and there has been a problem there. I should say, you know, I don't believe that that problem totally no longer exists. I'm very far from that, and you know, I think it's important that they're aired, but it's when we get to a stage that now we're looking for it everywhere. And that's kind of um, where we are now, and that troubles me. Mm. I'll give a really cool example, actually, because this week I, on Twitter, um, I saw about you know, 12 of my friends resharing this tweet where a woman had applied for a credit card, and um, she put her title as doctor, and it's and then her gender is female, and this alert had come up to say, you know, we don't recognise that title uh, or that gender, um, and of <laughs> course, she was horrified, and she, she, and and, and within twenty four hours, fourteen point five thousand likes and shares, um, and I just thought, seriously, I work in tech. I know that those two fields are not in any way connected on the back end, and mm -hmm. that no computer is going to see those. And sure enough, you know, I followed this thread down and some guy had replicated exactly the same user experience bug that had happened on the tech platform. And, and yet the HuffPo had picked it up. Mm -hmm. They all wanted to talk about this sort of uh, misogyny in, uh, in, in this product. And this credit card company is basically getting demonized for what is a stupid UX technical bug. But it was the mob mentality. There was almost this glee that, oh, look, we found another example of it. And I kind of just thought, how is this doing women any favors? It's, you know, and it's, it's not fair to the company. I feel sorry for them. They need to fire a UX guy or, or uh, look into the back end a bit. But 
that's not what this was, it had nothing to do with that. And that to me is so symptomatic of where we've got to with the narrative that looks for it everywhere. You know, Peppa Pig's dad fixes the computer and not the mom. This is a gender stereotype. Take aside the fact that Peppa Pig's dad's a fucking idiot. And the, you know, the, men's, the men's rights hate Peppa mm. Pig because it, it, oh yeah. Because they think that he's, um, he's, you know, he's just betrayed as such a fool in everything that he does, which he is. My husband hates it. It's like, this is what our children are, are growing up to. But the fact that he fixed the computer and his wife didn't is evidence of this sort of subconscious indoctrination that we're doing of children about gender roles. So I just said, be a mum of three children under five and watch enough Peppa Pig and you'll know that, that you've actually got like entirely the wrong way around. Mm. I would never have predicted that we would have gone to Peppa Pig. But <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about, about that. it in the context of everything. There's, yeah, there's a scandal now about how uh, there's some kind of children's book that talks about firemen as opposed to fire, fire people. Simon Sam is the other big yeah. cause du jour yeah. on the on the how we're indoctrinating children. Yeah. Yeah. And I know, seriously, give children some credit. You know, it, it's it's they just I just don't believe they see it. Yeah. Um, it's you know, is it insidious and it's waving through. I don't think it is anymore. I'm mm. glad that somebody at one stage said actually, you know, there's a little too much of this going on. Mm. But I don't find girl power a particularly compelling message for my daughter either. I you know, I find that all a bit I went into a paper chase and there's this whole row of sort of glittery, sparkly girl power, you know, we can do it type Defeat of Defeat the patriarchy. Yeah, smash, and smash. I just no, work with them. Yeah. You're not a girl first, you're you, you're Kitty, yeah. you're, you know, th th you're, you're your own unique individual. And you have more in common with people that share your values, your outlook, your upbringing, arguably, you know, than you do with anyone because they happen to share your, um, the number of chromosomes. Mm. Um, and that, to me, is what's worrying. We, we, we distill people down and then we exacerbate the difference. And that's across all identity politics, not just the gender debate. Do you think it's a problem as well with, with these types of messages where somebody would go, oh, I'm not going to go into tech because somebody like me isn't welcome, or there is a problem with it? That's where my angle is entirely. So I did a TEDx on this, and this is what I was alluding to earlier, the, the fear I felt for putting myself out there on this line. My... My argument is that, firstly, I'm an optimist. I do believe that women have many, many more opportunities than the narrative um, would have you believe. And secondly, I feel that this victimhood narrative is really damaging for how women perceive themselves. So I think it's only going to exacerbate the confidence gap that is already existent in more women than men mm. as a trait, you know, as an average trait. Women are much more subject to imposter syndrome and the confidence gap yeah. than men are. I, and I was a woman with all the opportunities in the world, a fantastic education, a great upbringing. You know, I, I still had that imposter syndrome. I shouldn't have had that. So if I'm having it and I see it amongst so many of the women that I mentor, that I work with, you know, there, there is this sort of we say what we're good at. We don't oversell ourselves mm. you know we ask for what we want we don't ask for more than that mm. you know we we apply for jobs where we can do 80 percent of the job spec whereas a guy is more likely to do it at 30 40 <laughs> percent there is there is this just sort of uh, more innate risk aversion in mm. women and i feel that the narrative encourages that further it does two things one it will make them more anxious mm. about certain fields where they're told they're going to be discriminated against you know they're not going to be walking into those quite as bullish and as confidently as I think they would otherwise. Um, and um, what was the second thing? 
kind of forgotten the second thing. Oh, the second thing is that this narrative lets them off the hook. And that's not good for them. You know, in my fields, when I meet with young female entrepreneurs, um, the number of times I've heard people say, or oh, didn't get that funding because, you know, they, they don't invest in women or they're not, you know, that it, it was a gender reason why I wasn't taken as seriously in that scenario. I, I've now got, I guess, the experience, the age of gravitas, so I'm mentoring them to actually say to them, no, actually, I was in your pitch. It wasn't good. <laughs> you know, don't let yourself off the hook. You know, you need to take feedback in, as an individual. And you need to constantly self-improve and, and look at what you can do. And even arguably, even if it was due to discrimination, the most productive reaction to that is not wounded insecurity, you know, go cry to someone about how you might have been, you know, um, gender discriminated against. But it's to actually go, well, come on then, I'll show you. And take the onus to circumvent the situation in some way. You know, resilience, it's, it should be about resilience. And I feel that the narrative of discrimination and victimhood undermines both that confidence and also that resilience and also the individual onus to take ownership of, you know, how you put yourself forward and to mold yourself, change yourself to the circumstances as, as required, which everybody needs to do as an individual, man or woman. It's not, that's not gendered. It, the point you make is, is, is really important, I feel, because a lot of the time, you know, we, we, there seems to be this narrative that women are more oppressed than ever. But I, I used to be a teacher. I was a teacher for 10 years. Girls are outperforming boys on every level in academia. And then every when level. And every then when level. they go to university, they're outstripping boys. Mm. I, I mean, boys seem to be the ones struggling, especially when it comes to the school level. Yeah. And that's another area of the debate that's incredibly fraught with nastiness and unpleasantness because obviously in reaction to a lot of the um the feminist line you've now got men's rights trying to excuse me draw attention to uh you know where those disparities exist mm. um and the date but the data does speak for itself and i find it pretty compelling um you know whether it's at performance at university whether it's uh, the fact that women in their 20s and 30s are earning just as much sometimes more than men and it's really striking when, in my field, again, when you look at STEM data um, and, you know, the, the ratios there apparently being so off whack. They are off whack if you only take a very narrow definition of STEM, mm. which is engineering and computer science and, um, you know, th th that type of science. Mm. If you take in social science, behavioral science, uh, medical science, mm. you know, anything of a biological nature, women are 75% within those fields of science. And yet nobody's saying we need to level up both sides, you know, we're only saying there aren't enough women in computers. I, I agree. I would love to see more women in um, in computing and engineering. Mm. I think they they have so much to contribute um, and, and and different balance of the types of products that we're that we're building. But in order to achieve that, we need to talk them out of other. They're not going to just create these women, you know, out of nowhere. We need to talk them out of the other choices that they're making. Um, and, you know, I would certainly personally err on the side of choice. You know, I don't believe women should be talked out of things that they want to go into. And yeah. there's certainly the sort of women that are picking those behavioral or biological sciences as opposed to the technical hard sciences are pretty bright women, you know, if they're picking those sciences. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I trust them to make those judgments. Um, 
And I don't either want to be talking women out of careers in arts and um, you know, social work and media and you know the, the, the creative fields and edu hell no, not out of education. But nobody's saying less women in teaching, please. Let's have more men in teaching. Yeah. So it's. Because men are toxic. <laughs> but all the conversations are being had in silos in the underrepresented yeah. fields, yeah. you know, whether that's in finance or it's yeah. in tech. Um, and that's, um, that to me is, you know, you can't have them in isolation. And the boys' arguments and the men's um, underrepresentation is, is never discussed. Um, and indeed, you know, the different lifestyle disadvantages that men as a group experience, you can't even bring up. Like what? Oh, there's so many. There's so many, and you know, there's there's suicide rates, there's homelessness rates, uh, rates of depression, rates of school dropouts, uh, workplace deaths, deaths in service, of course, uh, on frontline. You've got sentencing um, court disparity. Men receiving, you know, sixty percent longer sentences for the same crimes as women. Child custody, paternity cases. Uh, domestic abuse, which actually, you know, a heavy percentage of men, you know, uh, mm. suffer from that and, and we never hear about that. But it's, I don't know that it's helpful to fight fire with fire. Yeah. I think sometimes the context is required to help mm. broaden and open up the Overton window a little bit. And I think that's where some of the more moderate voices, are, like myself, are trying to just say, well, hang on, let's look at the full picture before we dive deep into one particular area. But then you get into a stage where there's this sort of competitive victimhood, which I think is where the men's rights uh, movement falls down. There's a lot of very smart people trying to make these arguments. And I guess just as the feminists or the progressive feminists would say, we've got to overcorrect in order to get back to a normal, I suppose the men's rights feel likewise, you know, overcorrect and overstress these things in order to at least get some awareness for them, particularly in this sort of clickbait, um, you know, headline grabbing media world and online world that we now live in. But it's it's just, it's victimhood by another name. That's and my I, biggest I worry that's, with it. That's my concern. Yeah, that's um, my biggest worry with it because it encourages people to go to the other extreme as well. And for men, men's rights movement is never going to be a particular success because people don't tend to feel sorry for men in the same way <laughs> that they feel sorry for women. Uh, it just It's just a fact of life, you know. Um, I feel sorry that we don't feel sorry. I feel sorry for men that we don't feel sorry but, for men. But that's, again, you talk about realities. It's the biological reality, in my opinion, because you look at, uh, you, you talk about male deaths in the workplace and mm. all the rest of it. Men evolved, we evolved to be disposable in a way that women are not. Mm. If you think about two tribes of 10 people each, right? Yeah. Let's say five men, five women in each tribe. The tribe that sends its men off to war, only one man comes back. You can replenish your mm. tribe at the mm. same rate. If you send your women off to war, it's not the same. So yeah. men are disposable biologically in a way that women are not. And I think that until, you know, until we have no war, until no one needs to be a fight, a firefight mm. or whatever, that will not change mm. because that's how men evolved to be and women evolved to be different. You talk about risk taking, etc. We've had evolutionary psychologists on the show talk about where that comes from. You know, the, the, the risk taking, risk aversion differences between men and women. Mm. It's, it's evolution, right? And this is why it's so important to take it in the round, as you say, because you can't just focus on one thing and go, well, men are more likely to die at work. Yes, it's true. It is true. And we don't feel as sorry for men as we do for women. But there's advantages to being a man. There are disadvantages to being a man. Mm. There's advantages to being a woman. There are disadvantages to being a woman. And what we have to do, I think, as a society is get rid of discrimination, but remember that we're not the same. Sure. You know? 
And one of the great things about women is women are different to men. So I, I reckon if you had more women in banking, for example, in 2006, 7, 8, with really powerful voices, I don't know if we would have had a financial crash in quite the same way because it would have been the super hyper-risk uh, hungry people making those decisions. Mm -hmm. If you had some women who are more risk averse with a strong voice in that boardroom, yeah. we may not have had the same problems, yeah. which is why I really think it's important that we, we do have people of both sexes represented. Sure. Um, but that has to come through, as you say, through opportunity, equality of opportunity, not by forcing people into those positions. Yeah. Right? That sounded like a party political broadcast of the Women's Equality well, Party. Yeah, but, but I think it's an important point to make. It is an important point to make. And that leads me very nicely on. Jess, do you believe in quotas? Uh, no. Surprise. <laughs> do, not be, do not believe in quotas at all. I don't think any self-respecting minority box tick wants to feel like they're there because they're a box tick. Mm. Um, I think some people will tell themselves that this is required in order to um, uh, correct an imbalance, but I think it does nobody any favours. It might correct that imbalance in the short term. I think it does nobody any favours in the medium to long term. So no, I'm not, not a fan. Uh, I mean, there's a counter argument to that where there is unconscious bias in that you, you're not aware that you have a bias, but you know, you only hire people that, you know, look or sound like you or have the same background as you, hence why everybody at the BBC comes from the same college at Oxford or Cambridge or whatever else. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that it doesn't sort of counterbalance that and force people to look outside the box, as it were? Well, yeah, I mean, this, uh, this, um, this concept of unconscious bias is now accepted. Yeah. And yet I understand it has been entirely debunked scientifically. It's just nobody can, nobody wants to report that. Um, I've, I've read articles that have actually done the research and say it's been debunked. However, I do believe there's a little bit of people like me hiring that goes on. Mm. But I don't believe that that is um, around identity boxes. I believe it's around upbringing, values, you know, um, social behaviours, mm. you know, uh, if they went to schools, you know, that, that you know you've automatically got that um, point of reference with yeah. that individual. And you might know some of the same people. You yeah. know, London's a small place in, in, in many respects. So I do think it happens a bit, although, you know, I have read that that unconscious bias is, is, is massively overstated. Um, and I, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt that there is more meritocracy and, and judgment employed in, in those things. But it's the lack of diversity on ideology, people type um, and background and, and viewpoints, socioeconomic um, diversity that I think is uh, the biggest risk and the diversity that I think we should be focusing on as opposed to the, um, the visible diversity boxes. It's, it should be much more about getting more psychological diversity. That, that's where, because at the moment the, the identity box, sorry, I've got on from one now. The identity box ticking only serves to help the people you know, of colour, all the women that have gone to the same universities that, you know, have yeah. had the fortunate, you know, well-supported upbringings with, you know, parents that believed in them. And, you know, and, and I've heard the argument that, well, that's where you start and then you create the role models to bring more people through the system. But at the moment, I see, I see the recipients of a lot of the diversity industry are those people that, um, that, that, that were doing pretty well already as a result of, you know, how fortunate they were with, you know, education or, or with attitude. You know, mm. some people are just 
born more intelligent, born you know more driven. And how, so, how do we get access to those types of people? So you know the people who grow who grew up who want to achieve but don't always come from the most affluent backgrounds, don't always have the wealth of opportunity. Because I, one thing that really angers me is the whole internship culture that I mm. see happening now. And that it didn't happen when I graduated university, but after 2008, I think it gave companies a little bit of carte blanche to start going, I'll come and work for free and then we'll see if you get a job or not. Okay, I think from what I've seen, and I'm not an expert at this, and you've just asked possibly the biggest societal challenge question of all, how do you bridge socioeconomic uh, background? I don't have the answer. <laughs> I don't have the answer to that. How do you get you know, the, the, a better melting pot of people from all those different backgrounds? I do know that there's, the tide has turned on that free internship thing now. Yeah. No serious business offers a free internship anymore because they have recognized that that is not the way it's not fair and it only rewards those that can afford to do mm. it as opposed mm. to those that can't and you know I'm, I'm i'm very encouraged by you know the people i know within the business community that absolutely accept that and go out of their way to engage with schemes that are about access for mm. those that don't aren't fortunate enough to have lots of parents you know within the school community that can offer those those free work experience there's some brilliant initiatives whether it's the founders for school initiatives or the work finder app or access uh, aspiration i think it's called that are deliberately around creating networks of mentors and schemes and opportunities for those that that don't have them within their existing community and school networks um, i'm a big a big big fan of those and do you think we should obligate companies to i mean maybe look at if you know if you're making a certain amount of money in profit that you should be maybe obligated or you know to bring people in from different socioeconomic backgrounds or do you think it should be more free market um i do i'm i i err on free market on most issues in in life but i don't see the harm in um you know telling strongly saying you need to get involved in your communities in better ways. But it doesn't have to be companies coming into business. It can be, can be companies going into schools. Mm. Yeah. And that's the big wave that I'm witnessing and I'm a big part of now, actually. Um, I'm on the advisory board of this fantastic initiative called Founders for Schools, which is now too narrowly defined. It's not just founders. It's all business people now going in. And it can be the 21-year-old graduate um, you know, uh, scheme um, guy, or it can be uh, a 60-year-old CEO that mm. goes in because everybody's got some mentoring that they can offer to those further down the ladder to them. Um, whether we need to mandate it, I'd say probably not, but I think if you're a responsible business and you do it, it makes you more appealing to people that then want to apply to you. You know, it's actually self, it's self-promotional in some ways to mm. do more of this. It's getting your brand into these schools for the talent to be aware of as they, uh, as they get there, as they graduate. And this is a question that I've always wanted to ask because I'm a former teacher. You're someone who works in business. You're, you're a leader. What do you think about this generation of young people? Because it seems to me that a lot of people in the, in the media say, oh, you know, these the education system, it doesn't produce, you know, good workers. You know, the next generation, they're awful, they're dreadful. Where do you stand on this new generation? Do you think they're ready for work when they come out or... Do you think... Which generation are we talking about? Are we millennials are obviously already in the workplace. Are we talking about Generation Y, Generation Z, <laughs> Gen I, Gen? Um, 
I, I'm, I'm an optimist. I think there's, there's, there's going to be so much talent coming through. I, I, but my biggest concerns and the, the, another debate that I've tapped into after I started going down the rabbit hole of feminism was, uh, and also now as a parent, is, is how we're bringing up children. And um, my concern, and obviously I'm very tuned in also to the sort of, sort of snowflake culture uh, conversation and this culture of safetyism that um, is in universities now. So the generation at university now is the one that was kind of brought up with smart devices and mm. social media and below. Uh, and I've really started um, going into depth now on what's happening to teenagers, how are devices and social media and screen time affecting their upbringing and um, you know, their, their sense of self. And I feel sorry for them in many ways. You know, I think they think that this is the most fun as far as technology is concerned ever, but it's also created this culture of um, sort of always on um, mental health, anxiety, desire for dopamine. And, um, you know, the kids now kind of have to have a personal brand from the age of sort of 11, 12, 13. <laughs> um, and there's this constant... Um, focus on self um, that that really worries me and I I think what we're doing and there's some fantastic research done by a woman called Jean Twenge in the States um, which I stumbled across through a fantastic book which has been a big influence on me Jonathan Hates and Greg Lukianoff's mm. Coddling mm. of the American Mind um, that that talks about how um, a 15 an 18 year old today is now more like a 15 year old 10 years ago because they've been kept so safe you know not allowed to go out not allowed to have saturday jobs you know not allowed to walk to school before the age of sort of 12 13 there's this sort of terror that there's so many evils in the world now that we really want to protect our children and we're no longer uh, preparing our children for the road but the road for the child um, and that this this coddling has dramatically impacted how resilient children are um, and, and made them nervous of bogeymen around every, every corner and, and really had a big impact on the maturity levels when they reach university, which is why a lot of them want protecting from bad words, nasty conversations, ideas that they don't want to uh, confront uh, by the time they get there. And I, I think that's a very, very real phenomenon. Uh, some people say it's overstated, but I think it is a real phenomenon, and I think that technology has been a big factor in that. Although I also think it's down to parenting styles and, you know, the the things within the educational system that you know no one has to win anymore. We've all got to be, uh, you know, we've all just got to take part as teams, and you know, we're there's the, there's so much going on around how we're bringing up children and educating children, and I think when you've thrown this massive missile of a twenty four seven. Uh, weapon of a smartphone for teenage girls to exact passive aggression on each other in the middle of the night by leaving them out of photographs or, or groups. You know, we've it, it's, it's, there's a very, very toxic, massively, rapidly changing environment that kids are being brought up in now. And how much responsibility do you think the tech companies have to these types of users? Because there, there's there's a huge debate going on now. Does Facebook have responsibility? Does Insta, well, Facebook and Instagram, mm -hmm. do Instagram have responsibility? Is it the parents' responsibility? Uh, I do think big tech has responsibility. Uh, this is my industry, and you know I've, I'm I'm tuned into all these debates about what they could and should be doing. The first thing I'd say is I think some of these are inadvertent byproducts. 
and um, you know, a lot of people will say that they're mirrors on behaviors. They're just made more accessible for the behaviors that teenagers engage in anyway. Um, and I think you know they have to look at how they moderate content, um, what they allow and the behaviors. But the fundamental problem with all of big tech is their business models, uh, particularly social media business models, which um, are determined and reliant on dopamine dopamine, eyeballs, and time spent online. So ultimately, the longer you're online, um, and it's dopamine that fuels the amount of time you spend online, the more money they make. Mm. Now that is a problem, and mm. I don't see how they can correct that overnight, um, because you know that we, we need children to get offline. It's been scientifically proven that mental health and online, poor mental health and online time is directly correlated mm more time offline, you know, uh, a better mental health. Um, and I think, you know, the social media neuroses, um, the, the, the neuroses that's caused by social media is uh, a massive problem. So I think tech is the problem. I think parents need to watch this. I think it's caught them unawares, you know, because a lot of it's been happening in the bedrooms and, you know, we're all playing catch up on how quickly these behavioral trends have happened. But I also think tech is the solution. So there's my entrepreneurial <laughs> optimism for you. Um, I, I, I think that different business models, different communications around what's happening, and I also think that there's a new narrative and appreciation of uh, the dangers of tech that's only just starting now to get serious. Mm. The last two years we've had this sort of whimsical Oh God, I'm addicted to my phone. Isn't it awful to sleep with it by my bed? Mm. And you know, I, there's too much time. And then looking at your screen time reports and thinking, God, what else could I have done with that four and a half hours today? Mm. That yeah. I've—is that just me? <laughs> um, it's probably more for us. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But the tide has moved from that sort of whimsical sort of incredulity about our tech use to actually now thinking. I resent this. Yeah. There's yeah. something really not quite right about this. The fact that I, you know, people aren't looking at each other on the street. Mm. The fact that you know we're constantly being distracted whilst we're in the middle of something, and we're happy to be distracted about mm. it. The fact that you can walk around the Louvre and 80% of people have got their back to the art, taking selfies of the art and not looking at it. Mm. There's something profoundly depressing mm. that I think people are now realising about the negative byproducts of these sorts of behaviours. Mm. Uh, and I think that th this will result in a lot changing. And I believe consumers vote with their eyeballs. You know, we're already, we've already invited all our parents onto Facebook and have left them there. You know, th and that, they, these will, it will change the, the behaviors and platforms will come, will go as, as quickly as they've, as they've come. Uh, and I believe that new tech will come up like my business, <laughs> which, uh, which empowers altruism, which empowers knowledge and passion sharing and inspiration um, in order to drive people offline. So that's, that's my business, basically. I'm trying to take that Instagram stories format mm. and repurpose it into people creating content that isn't about them and their face and whether they're looking yeah. gorgeous today, but it's about what they love, what they're good at, what they've learned to do, and empowering other people to do it in less than one minute so they can get offline and actually do it. Mm. Um, and putting that in an open web bank of, um, uh, that can be searched, that can be found, almost like Wikipedia, and can be built upon by other people who've got other ideas and things that they've learned. It's, it's a really powerful thing that you're doing because I can't, I can't remember, there was a piece of research done that actually you feel best about yourself, not when you achieve something, but actually when you help mm. another person. Absolutely. The dopamine hit is much more profound yeah. than a, oh, 
Yeah. You know, if somebody actually says to you, wow, you know, I love that uh, that that cake that, that you taught me about. That's not yeah. a great example, but, yeah. you know. Cake is incredible. Okay, cake cake yeah. can be incredible. <laughs> yeah. But say it's like learning how to fix something or yeah. learning how to do something offline or a new yoga pose or, you know, or crafting, mm. you know, and they say, oh, I did that. And then I changed the color scheme and I added this to it and look what I built. And if somebody sends you that image or the video of what they've created off the back of something that you taught them how to do, mm. You're just going to have this sense of, oh, you know, yeah. that that child got that toy that their parent made for them or they had that party and they had that really fun game because I told them what that game was and they found it out because of me. So I'd love, I don't know how naive it is to think that we're going to shift the tide immediately because that, people, somebody likes me, somebody loves me, dopamine hit is the most powerful motivator on earth. Mm. You know, everybody, it, it, it's got status in it. It's got um, validation. Mm. It's got friendship. It's, you know, the, and that's what all those business models are powering. Yeah. And I believe we can power it in a way that delivers something that, that is more fulfilling in the long term. Um, and Tick, uh, my business, is, is trying to work out how we get those, those hooks um, firing. So well, helping those fun. less fortunate than you always very important. That's why I like working with Francis. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, man. No. Um, but uh, in terms of you, you're obviously someone who's very optimistic. And just to take, uh, to, to, we've got about uh, 10, 15 minutes left, to take us back to the whole conversation about men, women, all of that. How do we move to a more constructive way of talking about these things? Because, you know, we had that horrible shooting in New Zealand recently it will be a couple of weeks by the time this episode goes out probably and you have the leader of the women's equality party in this country um can't remember her name coming out and saying this was all this this is just toxic masculinity that's the cause of this stuff and it seems like we're using everything now to make these very narrow political points about men and women and all this stuff so how do we how do we move forward positively from here Hmm. <laughs> you, you've never been asked that question before. I have. I um, there's a very good uh, TED talk that I did uh, where I talk about my um, positive, um, uh, the positive solutions as I see it. Um, I think we we need to broaden the the context of the whole discussion, mm. and, and that's I guess uh, another one of my biggest concerns. Um, there's the undermining of confidence in women and the and the victimhood mentality, but there's also the fact that we're seemingly not allowed to have so many of these discussions, and we need to stop shutting people down for broadening them or 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 asking things in different directions. We need to allow men to be in the debate more, mm. not just on one side. They're mm. allowed in the debate as long as they're singing from this mm. song sheet mm. um, that you know all men bad, all women good. Um, and that's just so binary and it's, uh, it's unfair and it, it's not accurate and there's nothing positive about that narrative. And that's, that's what concerns me. You know, we shouldn't be teaching girls about powerful girls. We should be teaching boys about powerful girls, uh, you know, and, and, and powerful people generally. Mm -hmm. and, and appreciating that, you know, we're all individuals uh, first and foremost and beautiful, crazy, you know, different, unusual, you know, distinct in our own rights. Uh, and I guess that's what I want to see because what's happening is it takes oxygen away from areas where I, I, I believe prejudice uh, and discrimination does still exist, mm -hmm. you know, whether that's socioeconomic or whether if you, if you just want to keep it on feminism, you know, everything that's happening with 
women and hijabs in the Middle East. Mm. You know, that's real desperate feminism in action mm. that isn't being supported and has got nothing to do with, you know, Air conditioning in offices or yeah. whatever, yeah. Yeah, or manspreading and mansplaining and... Look at Francis, he's... And and <laughs> you know, there's so much oxygen being lost on the little things when there's so many big issues to come up with. And I think having a more healthy and open debate around it, one that isn't gender pay gap equals discrimination, but actually, oh, interestingly, gender pay gap also can reflect choice and mm. positive decisions that women make to reclaim more balance in their lives and you know we won't go off on that I know you've done quite a bit on gender pay gap previously but no, well, you you are a good example of that you talk about yourself having three children or four years and how that changed your attitude to to your working mm -hmm. life and everything else right so to tell us more about that well I would like to see more women like me publicly saying that mm. because the number of people that have come up to me after I've put myself on the line a little bit about this and said oh thank you you know I I totally agree with you you know I've chosen to spend time, you know, these years at home. You know, I've chosen to, I don't want to make partner anymore. Why would I want to do that? It's a masochistic, unpleasant life mm. of long hours, no balance, politics and stress. You know, life is too short. And, you know, I, this is what I choose and the gender pay gap between me and my husband is about 90%, 100%. Mm. Um, and men, of course, often say, thank you for saying this because I'm not allowed to. And I'm like, why aren't you allowed to? You've got a wife you love dearly. You've got daughters that you care about. You know, mm. you're not, you do not not have a vested interest mm. in, in this debate. But that won't save you now. That's the thing. It's like both Francis and I partner. Like I talk to my wife about this and she's, she's probably more against this stuff than I am in mm. some ways. She's probably less understanding of all this victimhood than I am. Because I'm like, well, the, the, but this happens, but this happens. And she has a very similar attitude too. She's mm. like, well, you just, you know, of course there's discrimination, but you power through it or mm. you, you deal with it. Uh, and she can say that. But if a man was to say that, mm. and, and we know this, for example, in comedy, Francis and I were talking just before you, you, you got here, uh, you know, uh, it's perfectly normal now to go into a comedy club and see a woman talking about how men are trash on stage. <laughs> That's comedy now. <laughs> I know. You know, and, and you just kind of go, well, of course, you know, not all men are perfect and there are problems with masculinity. But that level of vitriol mm. that you have now is, is gone to a level which I find very difficult to understand, that people sit there and kind of take it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And what, what, what concerns me the most is the lack of kindness mm. yeah. in the tone of the debate. Mm. You know, there's a there's a huge amount of anger thrown around and sort of nasty piss taking and um, shutting down, and that to me doesn't further any debate mm. or discussion, uh, and it means there isn't room for all these different voices. And if people are scared to raise their head on something as fundamental as you know whether they have the right to feel, you know optimistic mm. about their opportunities in life or not, then there's something seriously wrong there. Mm. And I don't, and I, I have, I'll be perfectly honest, I have found it actually really hard. I tried to do a micro version of my TED talk at a media advertising conference um, 
uh, a few months back and I chose perhaps unwisely to then open that up to a workshop afterwards <laughs> um, and there's a reason why I've done it in um, as a, as, a, as a TED talk and not as, as a debate. So mm. I'm actually not that strong a debater. I kind of can get a bit flustered and yeah. kind of forget the angles. You know, I'm, I, I, I hate something like Newsnight or, mm. you know, one of those sorts of shows. Um, but I chose to open it up and people were so nasty and they made it very, very ad hominem about mm. me. Um, you know, it was, well, you're all right. You haven't experienced this. You haven't experienced that. And, and I took it all. And I ended up on, uh, totally on the back foot and said, oh, well, you know, it, maybe, maybe you're right. And then I went away and thought about it and said, no, I'm, it, I, I know enough. I've spoken to enough people. I've lived in this world. And I'm, even if I'm only allowed, if you only allow me to talk about the fields that I know, there's something very wrong within those fields mm. um, or, or within some of the narrative around it. And I just don't understand why... I have to, you know, why it has to be so unpleasantly um, shut down. Let's have a conversation. Yeah. The vitriol is incredible, and it yeah. happens particularly when people from supposedly oppressed groups speak out. Mm. That's when it seems to be extra vicious, doesn't it? Like we've had people on the show from people who are black or, or female or whatever talking about you know, there isn't that much racism or isn't this particular oh, yeah, problem. Yeah, yeah. And those people get some of the most vicious abuse from the, from the people who think they're on their side, mm. you know? But that just means that we're never going to have any no, um, yeah. introverts go into public life no. yeah. in any way. Yeah. And introverts are often the most thoughtful yes. people on this earth. Yeah. You know, there, there's a reason why they've weighed these things up, they've thought about it. I mean, James Damore, mm. sorry, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, that's the one. I can literally, if I say James Damore, I can literally throw a bomb into a room full yeah. of tech women. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I thought that whole debate was a debate that needed to be had, no mm. matter where you fell on yeah. any side of what he was saying. This is a nerdy, introverted guy who'd actually gone away and done a lot of research mm. and distilled it and was asking some interesting questions. Now, you can disagree with the conclusions he came to, but you, you? shouldn't... I personally don't, know. Um, um, but you, you shouldn't disagree with his ability to be able to have that conversation. Yeah. And that, to me, was symptomatic of so much of the, the level of debate yeah. that when it, why are we not allowed to have that conversation? You're not feeding one side or the other. It's this whole sun, disinfectant of sunlight on an issue. Um, and obviously, uh, back to big tech again, there's this huge debate around how, you know, the sort of uh, political... Um, sort of social ideologies of these um, uh, of these tech companies are now arbitrating in a way that um, is fundamentally affecting that debate as well, mm. you know, with, with certain viewpoints totally, you know, mm. shut down and, and, and banned, and I'm sure you know more about that than I do. But it's happening on an everyday level in everyday conversations, and yeah. that's what concerns me. That is not a popular view, you know, the, the 14.5 thousand retweets of this mm. poor tech bug demonstrate that there's a right-on way of being able to talk about these issues. And what amuses me is they all think that they're like some great um, you know, activists yeah. around these issues. I'm like, this isn't activism. This is the line. Yeah. This is the line that is acceptable. Mm. Yeah. My line's not acceptable yeah. on some of these issues, yeah. and I can get crucified for it and have mm. done very, very personally. Mm. So I don't try to do this in 
open forums anymore. Well, this yeah. is only going on the internet. So uh, yeah, you're, right. you're going to be fine. <laughs> uh, but but there, is, there is a giveaway in that attitude of having to shut people down, which is you're, by shutting someone down instead of engaging with their argument and defeating their argument, what you're really saying is, I know they're right. You, that's what you're really saying. Yeah. Because if, you, if they were wrong, you would just prove them wrong. But yeah. if you have to shut someone down, that means their arguments actually are accurate. Because otherwise, why would you have to shut them down? Well, I don't, I'm not sure I agree with that. I don't know if that, but the point is, you're not, why would you not want to disprove that argument? But that's my point. Wrong. Well, that's my because point. you're scared of it in some way, why? perhaps. Be I yeah. don't know. Right. I, I just don't know. I just think always more polite, interesting, mm intellectual, non-personal way of discussing these issues is the way to go. And I'm not quite sure how we kind of reverse a lot of these tone of d the debate and, you know, the, because it's exacerbated so much by the social media tools mm. and the, the way in which mainstream media has had to, it's got to go to the clickbait yeah, extreme yeah. of any argument. And it means that there's nothing is allowed to be gray anymore. Mm. Yeah. And that's, that's a real worry because everything's gray. Yeah. Everything, nothing yeah. is black and white. That's such a British point of view. Everything it's is gray, gray yeah. depressing, and yeah, it's always yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> but it, but it, it's it's really it's really pertinent because you hear you know and you see these titles you know smashes so and so mm. you know you know crushes whatever and you think well all they're really talking about is ideas and mm. isn't discussion at its best when you say something to me and I go. Actually, I've never thought about it mm. like that. You know, mate, she's got a point. I'm going to go away and whenever I think, I'm going to change what I think. Yeah. And I'm going to evolve as a person and a human being. But sure. we don't do that anymore because it's about ego now. It's I have to beat you. Yeah. And ultimately, nobody really learns anything. And it's also everything is a soundbite. Yeah. I've probably said, for example, three or four things within this chat that might not have been that well considered and that I'll go and I'll watch it again and I'll think... Those will be the clips oh, we use. And, and those, and the, thanks very much. But those will also be the quotes that will get of thrown course. at me, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. the next time I'm, you know, somebody, somebody would have done their research yeah. and when I'm fabulously Mark Zuckerberg-esque with my new platform, tick, mm. check it out, it's free yeah, in the yeah, app store. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they'll find something, you know, that ill-advised that I will have said today in some context in all of this sort of lots of controversy and you can hear it in the way I talk. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm working all this stuff out for myself. Mm. And I think this is such a cathartic way for us to learn from each other and throw these ideas around. Yeah. Uh, and yet there are so few forums like this uh, and the one that you've put together with trigonometry that really enable us to do that. And that's that's, a, that's just such a shame. Mm. Well, that, that is what we're trying to do. You know, the final thing... Further the cause of the alt-right. Yeah, apparently that's what we're doing. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Someone's going to take that literally. Yeah, I know. It sounds better in my voice as well. It sounds more authentic, doesn't it? You don't sound... I always think alt-right as Americans, though. You don't sound alt-right. You just sound racist. Yeah. Um, the final thing, I, I always feel like it's important when we talk about this men and mm. women stuff that we also address the fact that there are some men who've gone off the deep end as well, as you say, as a result of this toxicity on both mm. sides. So you have mm -hmm. all these incels and these people running around going, well, women are always complaining, all this stuff. And it's like, no, that doesn't help either. You know, men and women need to come together. 
the, the two groups of people historically that have always needed to cooperate more than mm. any other groups is men and women. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, you look at any successful person, they probably have a very healthy relationships with people of the other sex because that's how you live life, by mm. dealing with other people, mm. you know. And if you, if, you, if you have those unhealthy attitudes, you're going to struggle, whatever it is you're doing, you mm. know. Um, and that worries me as well. I think that it's, it's great that you hear a lot of people you know, people like we talked about Joe Rogan and people like others and us trying to remind men as well that don't be a dick. That's also part <laughs> of part of the that also has to be part of the conversation mm -hmm. because a lot of men are resentful now. They are resentful is what they see as a kind of yeah. war on men. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. you know, some of there is a legitimate argument to be made that we live in a society where men are kind of stigmatized for being men. But the answer to that isn't to become a dick. The answer to that is to try and have more conversations, to try and learn about stuff, to try and bring the conversation back to the middle. Mm. And that's why we were always very grateful to have guests like you uh, to come on and talk to us about that. So uh, let's have our final question. Right, okay, can I just say that you said men and women come together and I didn't make a joke about it. And I'm so proud of myself. Yeah. I'm evolving as a human being. Um, <laughs> Look at Jess <laughs> rolling her eyes, which is the exact same thing that every woman in my life does. <laughs> but Jess, uh, just to finish up, uh, we always end on this question. What is the one thing that, we're talk we're, that we should be talking about as a society that we're not really? Yeah, you've given me um, an hour where you've made me talk throughout the whole hour to think about my answers to this question. Um, so it's a, it's a sort of summary in some way of a lot of the stuff we've been talking about. It's this obsession on self, selfie, me, my identity. Mm. Um, there's something that I don't think is being discussed enough is this sort of the very narcissistic, unpleasant nature of you, know, you me, me, sorry, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, the onus yeah, on yeah, you, yeah, you. you. and yeah, bad joke. Um, <laughs> Gee, were you, were, you in my, were you in the crowd last night? <laughs> yeah, I, I, it worries me that we are, that nobody is actually saying, well, actually, you know, all this time in our own head, thinking about ourselves and our mindfulness and our mental health and our, our gender and our identity and what we want and what we can contribute to the world and our values and our, what's the, the trendy thing at the moment? Is what's your purpose? What's your purpose in life? And I kind of think, well, you know, they, that's not a healthy, that's not a healthy culture. If we're all obsessing about us and what we want and what we're doing, and um, you know, it, it, the the onus is being lost. And I think the selfie itself is the most symptomatic um, visual mm -hmm. representation right. of um, a culture that is dangerously obsessed with self. So yeah, big. Big. Are we talking about that enough? I think we are in, in lots of sort of yeah. different issues, but that to me kind of encapsulates it. And we kind of want to say, really? Stop looking at yourself. <laughs> it feels like it's directed at me. Yeah, and stop playing with yourself as well, Francis. See, I've gone down no, to that yeah, level yeah, as well. Yeah, this no, is what happens. It's, it's yeah, toxicity yeah, spreading. Meant together. Eventually talks about willies. Right, okay. So, and on that note. Yeah, great note to finish on. Um, I'm sorry about him and, uh, and about me, Jess. I'm, I'm sorry about everything. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, your Twitter is? 
at Jess Butcher. At Jess Butcher. And my business is... Well, I was about to plug it. Yeah, I was about to plug it. It's Tick and it's available on the App Store. Yes, search for Tick Done on the Apple Store, Android coming very soon. Fantastic. As always, follow us at TriggerPod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, click the bell button next to the subscribe button so you get notified of when the video comes out. Subscribe to the YouTube channel if you haven't already for more great videos. Uh, give us an iTunes review, blah, blah, blah. We'll see you in a week from now. Absolutely. Uh, also as well, just check to see if you haven't been uns unsubscribed. It always happens. Please check it out. And uh, thanks. And also, just tell a friend about us. Spread the word. Spread the hate. Speak soon. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>